We're looking this morning at the subject of abortion's aftermath. The text is 2 Samuel 12. And the first thing you'll notice in your outline in the bulletin is that there has been a shift in our society concerning the subject of life. Firstly, note what used to be. What used to be. In last week's message, I referenced David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba, resulting in her becoming pregnant, and David's attempt to pawn the child off on Uriah by bringing him home from the war with the hope that he would sleep with Bathsheba, his wife, so that David's sin would be hidden. The text before us indicates that David never did get away with this treachery. God had watched the whole sinful scenario unfold before his eyes. Nathan the prophet was sent to David to explain the consequence of his willful sin. Not only would David's wives be sexually violated and the disgrace seen by the whole nation in broad daylight, verse 11, but David and Bathsheba's child was struck by the Lord, verse 15, with a terminal illness from which he did not recover. Despite David's fasting and prayer for many days, verse 17, on the seventh day the child died, verse 18. And the servants were completely confused when David got up from the ground, took a bath, anointed himself with lotions, and put on his clean clothes, and then it says, went into the house of the Lord, notice the next word, and worshipped. Verse 20. I read that and I wonder if that were my child, would I have done that? Even if I would have known that the child was born because of some sin in my life, to have lost a child because of that, could I have gone into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And then after that he went home and had a meal. Now his servants could not contain themselves anymore. And so they asked why are you acting this way? While the child was alive you fasted and wept but now that the child is dead you get up and eat? Verse 21. David's response is given in the next verses. I fasted and wept, thinking, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me. The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, and he's referring to the fact when he dies. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. What is going on here is that David is bowing to the chastening of the Lord for his sin. And something else is going on. He's keeping his faith. Keeping his faith. Most of us would scratch our head and say, Okay, God, if that's what you're... Okie dokie. Count me out. Me and you are done. Take my child. Punish my child for something I did. And we would lose our faith over this. Many people have. So amidst all of this pain and sorrow, brethren, there is something peaceful and wonderful. The belief by David that God and God alone has the right to take the life of his child and for reasons satisfactory to himself. In this, if, if this rather is God's will, then so be it. That's the way David is reasoning. But let no man or woman play God in these matters. God as creator is to be praised and worshipped whichever way it goes. It's similar, I think, to Job's consolation at the death of all his adult children, who in a day, all seven of them were killed when the house in which they were feasting collapsed under a great and mighty wind. And Job responded, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. 
in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. There was no wrongdoing because God may do with his creation what he wills. Even when one thinks of their station or position in life, Paul's, word provi- Paul's words provide an accurate description. And here's what he says. But you, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter, and the potter here is God, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Romans 9, verse 20 and 21. A fine porcelain vase to showcase beautiful flowers or, or a common clay pot, no matter. The choice is God's. That's what Paul is saying. The result is the work of his hands. And if he chooses to beautify one and submit the other to common kitchen cookery, as creator, he has that prerogative and he has that right without fear of contradiction and without fear of interrogation. Why have you made me like this? And that's what Paul is protesting, you know. As creatures, we don't get to interrogate God. He interrogates us. He asks us, but we don't get to question Him. So then, when we come to the abortion issue, which has to deal with people playing God, with people deciding for themselves who of their offspring will live and who will die, unlike David, there is no thought of God in the decision-making process, but simply a self-centered act which is justified for economical or personal reasons. Thirty-nine years ago, the Supreme Court set God aside in these matters and made it legal for women on their own and with no thought of the offense to God to end the life of their unborn children through abortion. It was not the beginning of abortion in this country, but it was the legalization of it. And so the shift in thinking then went to this, not, is it right, that is, is it moral, but to, is it legal? And now, legal trumps moral every time. And that's where we are as a nation today. Well, where are we now? Well, now, with no more than the collusion between a woman and her doctor, a baby's life can be ended in the clinic at any trimester of fetal development. Even the father of the baby has no say. This has come up a number of times in the courts. But it's the woman's right to choose what she's going to do. To make this murder of the innocent more acceptable in the public eye, agencies like Planned Parenthood have worked hard to adopt new language which redefines life and redefines murder so that the sting of the immorality of abortion is lessened. Careful effort has been made to remove from public consciousness any concept of homicide or murder when talking about abortion. The emphasis has been shifted from the right of the unborn to life and happiness and to the pursuit of those things to the right of women to do in private whatever they wish to do with their own bodies, as it's said, regardless of the consequence or the effect that the child will have that they are carrying. When it is aborted, this child is not viewed as a child. We are told that it is but fetal tissue. We are told that it is a non-person. We are told that human life occurs somewhere else after conception and after the fetal tissue is given birth. And this is to suggest, of course, that human life occurs in a distinctly different way than all other life occurs. The American public is being asked to believe that a person 
is not a human being until it emerges from the mother's womb. How convenient. Think about that. Thus, so long as a baby remains in the womb of its mother, it becomes fair game to the abortionist knife and suction tube or salt poison with no pinch of conscience that what is being intentionally destroyed is a human being. I mean, we cut out cancers, we surgically remove diseased organs, we rid our bodies of tumors and cysts and growths and everything else, so why not cut out fetal tissue? You see, such a concept seems monstrous to rational people, and so the abortion industry goes the extra mile to convince us that what is being cut out is not an unwanted child, but rather an unwanted growth, a tumor, or what? in the mother's womb. Yet every intelligent and informed member of society knows the difference between surgically removing a cancer of the uterus and the removal of a growing and multiplying organism which is the result of union between sperm and egg. One is a method of terminating a disease of body cells which have gone berserk, cancer, the latter is the termination of human life in the making. Try, try as hard as they do, we remain unconvinced. Thirdly, all of this has been successful, however, because Planned Parenthood plays on the selfish propensities of their clients. Oh, well, women have their rights. Well, we need to be free the expense of raising a child when I can't afford it, and on and on it goes. And in addition, crisis pregnancy centers are portrayed by the news media as institutions of deception. This is the latest attack, and we need to be aware of it. World Journey magazine, in an article dated March 27th of this past year, wrote, crisis pregnancy centers have been making a difference in the lives of millions of women and the unborn for decades now. Organized to respond to the ongoing assault on life and to restore the dignity of women and men, crisis pregnancy centers have helped to reduce the number of abortions as volunteers reveal the emotional, physical, and spiritual impact of this medical procedure. As some people say, quote, abortion leaves one person dead and at least one wounded, end quote. None of this sits well with those who fall under the pro-choice umbrella, people whose sole objective is to see abortions carried out. Choice is espoused by advocates, but when it comes to helping women explore other options, including giving birth, clinics have a vested interest that an abortion be accomplished. Notice this next sentence. Crisis pregnancy centers are a business threat, business threat, and if the underlying spiritual aspects were included, they undermine the schemes of the evil one. That spiritual battle is played out across the land, indeed around the world, becoming quite evident recently when New York City passed the law requiring crisis pregnancy centers to disclose in advertisements and at their facilities what, now get this, what services they do not provide, including abortions and emergency contraceptives. The American Civil Center for Law and Justice has stepped in on behalf of 13 crisis pregnancy centers in New York, serving the five boroughs, filing a federal lawsuit challenging the ordinance. What business, what clinic in the United States is required to post in their literature or on their signs or whatever, here's all the services we do not provide. You see how the evil one works. Again, the Blaze newspaper of San Francisco wrote this article. San Francisco leaders are coming together to strategically clamp down on what they are calling, quote, one of the most serious threats to reproductive rights today, end quote. This dramatic call sounds like it's more suited to describing 
a rampant spreading disease than it is crisis pregnancy centers, which generally counsel women against having abortions. Cohen's bill, now Cohen is the city supervisor for San Francisco. Cohen's bill is entitled the Pregnancy Information Disclosure and Protection Ordinance, end quote. The proposal would give these crisis pregnancy centers 10 days to correct misleading advertisements. If they choose not to do so, they would then be fined or given a court order requiring them to make necessary changes. Of course, this causes one to question who gets to define what qualifies as misleading information. Now the reality is that the crisis pregnancy centers have cost the abortion industry millions and millions of dollars in unperformed abortions. In Michigan alone, abortions have dropped from an all-time high of 49,098 in 1987 to 22,000, almost half, less than half, 22,357 in the year 2009, which is the last year we have uh, statistics for. Radical difference. What does that tell us? It tells us the crisis pregnancy centers are having an impact in Michigan, in our state, as well as across the United States. And thus the pro-life movement is making successful inroads into protecting the lives of the unborn. And even so, I think the killings are outrageously high. And as Christians, we know and love God. We cannot withdraw from the battle because the, the war has not been won. We get weary of this, but we have to keep our feet to the fire and keep alert. Now, why does abortion thrive? Notice that as your second point in the outline. And I'm suggesting that it thrives due to not just ignorance, not just ignorance, but willful ignorance. Willful ignorance. We, whether the ignorance is theological or scientific. Now, I realize that people of the world are not interested in what God has to say about the origin of life. But interested or not, we as God's people must be careful to know the facts ourselves and to relate them to those who have buried their heads in the sand. Tonight's video uh, that we're going to show here deals with some of these facts with regard to abortion. And it deals with how to talk to people who are pro-abortion and to see how, it, when they hear the truth, it doesn't matter. But we're going to see on the film tonight some very adamant people who are pro-choice, pro-abortion. And how, with using the scriptures and learning how to do that, they do a 180 by the end of the conversation. And it doesn't take hours and hours and hours. It doesn't take days and days. It doesn't take a lot of book reading. And you'll see that tonight. I think it's marvelous to see how the Word of God and how simple testimony can make people think. They're not... Thinking. That's why I say it's willful, willful ignorance. The facts are out there. The books are out there. The truth is out there. The science is out there. It's a willful ignorance. What's some of these facts? Well, no, fact number one, and granted, the world isn't going to accept this, but this is the truth, that God Himself is responsible for the formation of a child within a mother's womb. Such formation is accords with God's pre-plan. Jeremiah was told by God, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah 1 verse 5. What do you see here? We see God actively engaged in the formation of Jeremiah. It's not just, okay, sperm from the dad, egg from the mother, cells dividing, redividing, redividing, day one, day two. It's not just that. He's saying, I formed you in the womb. Before Jeremiah, there was David. And David said in the psalm we read this morning, You created my inmost being. You knit me together 
in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Psalm 139, verse 13 and following. And so writes David. Now, you understand here, the Bible is not a scientific book, so it's not getting into all the scientific lingo as to how the the, uh, conception process takes place and the development of the child in the womb, but it's just giving you the overlying facts and, and they're talking about being knit together and formed and, and all of that, which is the bare bones truth, is it not? That's what's being said here. We don't have to know all the scientific detail to know what is happening and who's doing it. But oh, let's go back a little further. Even before David, there was Job, who in discussing his own relationship to the servants of his household said this, Did not he, God, who made me in the womb, make them. Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? Job 31, verse 15. So here he's saying there's no, not even any class distinction. I might be the master of this estate, the boss, but even my servants, we, we were all formed the same way. And so all of these scriptures indicate that God Himself was responsible for the formation of these people within their mother's wombs. And what is more, the very existence of these individuals was pre-planned by God. It was with full anticipation of their service to God. Service as a priest, Job acted as a priest for his family, Job 1 verse 5. Service as a king, in the case of David. Service as a prophet, as in the case of of Jeremiah, and I could go on and say service in whatever it is that God has called you to do. God has you in the apple of His eye, planned for on purpose. In fact, it is the direct personal involvement of God in the growth process of the individual within the womb, which forms the rationale that all men, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their ethnic origin, owe their allegiance to God who created them. That's the rationale. And This is why when Jeremiah said, Ah, sovereign Lord, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a child. And God rebuked him and said, Do not say I am only a child. And then the Lord reached out His hand and touched him on the mouth and said, Now I have put my words in you. See, today I appoint you. You're my child, you're you're my servant, and I can call you. So here's the question. What right does God have to appoint anyone to do what He has to say? Well, it's the right of Sovereign Lord, who even before our birth can say to us, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. That's how He can boss us. It is the right of Creator of whom Job said, He made me in the womb. All the days ordained for me were written in the book, in your book, says David, before one of them came to be. That's how David's kingship is under God's kingship. And so God himself is responsible for the formation of the child within the mother's womb. And not only those whom we might call the people of God, but mankind everywhere. And that's why Paul talks in Romans 1, the whole world is accountable to God. He's not just our creator as Christian people, as believers. He's the creator of the entire population of the world. Secondly, second fact. The beginning of human life occurs at conception and not somewhere later in the growth cycle. God, in describing Ephraim's rebellion towards him and his subsequent judgment, says that he will see to it that there is, and these are God's words now, that there is No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they rear children, I will bereave them of every one. Hosea 9, verse 11 and 12, a statement of judgment. But at least here we observe 
that children born to Ephraim had their start with conception. There's no notion that their existence as a human beings began sometime after birth. It was conception, pregnancy, birth, to work it backwards. The same process is portrayed in the case of David and Bathsheba. After their one night affair, we read the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. 2 Samuel 11 verse 5 and verse 27 says, She became his wife and bore a son. Here it is, same process, conception, pregnant, birth. But the baby at the end of that was alive as a developing baby from the beginning in the womb. David says of himself, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Psalm 51, verse 5. Not just after the birth process, but when I was conceived. So he obviously considered himself to be alive and present at conception as well at the time of his birth. Solomon writes in the Song of Solomon in contemplation of his beloved, and here's what he writes. Under the apple tree I roused you, and there your mother conceived you. There she who was in labor gave you birth. Place me as a seal over your heart. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 5. His beloved existed at conception. She was a you that was conceived, not an it that was conceived. And that God has control over the entire life cycle is borne out in what God said to Israel in Isaiah 46, verse 3 and following. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all you who remain of the house of Israel, you whom I have upheld since you were conceived and have carried you since your birth, even to your old age and gray hair, I am He. I am He who will sustain you. I have made you. I will carry you. Remember this. Fix it in your mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. I say my purposes will stand and I will do all that I please. Isaiah 46, verse 3 and following. Human life begins at conception and not somewhere else in the growth cycle. And God is involved in it all from conception to where you're getting gray hair. He's still sustaining, conceiving the life and then sustaining it throughout life. Fact number three. It is because God is responsible for the formation of a child within the womb and because this human life begins at conception that the scriptures speak repeatedly of children being the gift of God. When Esau had his reunion with Jacob, he looked up and he saw the women and the children coming, great crowd, and he asked, who are, who are these with you? And Jacob responded, they are the children that God has graciously given your servant. Genesis 33, verse 5, their gift. We read in Psalm 127, 3, Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from Him. That's our memory verse for this week. In Psalm 113, verse 9, He settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Think of all the barren women in Scripture that God eventually gave children to. Sarah was barren, God gave her Isaac. Rachel was barren, God gave her Joseph. Hannah was barren, God gave her Samuel. Elizabeth was barren, God gave her John the Baptist. These people all acknowledged that children were gifts from God. But not only did God's people realize this, the heathen as well recognized the same. When Abraham deceived Abimelech by saying that Sarah was his sister, we read, the Lord closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Which, of course, Abimelech was planning to marry. Genesis 20, verse 18. 
See, God controls those things. Children are God's gift. Weak children, strong children, healthy children, sick children, mentally sharp children, mentally retarded children. They're all the creatures of God. In Exodus 4 and verse 11, the Lord said to him, this is Moses, the Lord said to Moses, who gave man his mouth? Because Moses was complaining, I can't go down to Egypt and preach for you because I'm not very good at speaking. Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? You can't just say that because a child has a deformity, it's not a child. Or it's not a gift from God. You say, well, why would he do that? I don't know. They are in his purposes. I can make some guesses. But we just need to acknowledge the fact. In Isaiah 45, verse 9, we read this. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker. This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel. Do you question me about my children? Or give me orders about the work of my hands? Children are His gift. Fact four. Because children are God's gift, they are to be considered worthy of great value and reared with a view to the glory of God. Reared with a view of thanksgiving. Jesus taught whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name. Now listen how he says this. Whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. Whoa. But, he goes on, if anyone causes any one of these little ones who believes in me, it would be better for it causes them to sin. It would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Matthew 18, verse 5 and 6. And so here the issue of sinning against children is paramount. Verse 10, he says, See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. In other words, God is always in a face-to-face basis with the angelic representation of our children. And then Jesus proceeds to tell the story of the shepherd who leaves his 99 sheep in order to go out and find just that one that's lost. And bring them back into the fold. And the punchline is given in verse 14. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. The abortion industry in general and the selfish and God-ignorant parents in particular will have to give an account to the God of heaven for what they did with His children. His gift to humanity and for how they despised God in the process. For when they aborted His children, they did it to Him. Because all people, children included, are created in the image of God, by God, for His glory. May He be praised. And James writes, religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless as this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James 1, verse 27. Well, that's the third point in the outline. I'm sorry to say we are being polluted by the world, brethren. We are. The world is shaping our theology. It's shaping our practice more than God and His Word in some of these matters. With the door to legalize the murder of our nation's children thrown wide open, the door has also been opened for abortions aftermath. 
Things are happening beyond the abortion issue. For one, infanticide. Infanticide, killing of babies now, is but the logical, logical step to take when abortion performed in the latter trimester of a pregnancy goes bad. And the baby, which was supposed to be killed through the saline solution, is not killed, is born alive. Oh, 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 what are we going to do now? Well, think about this. Such babies are now outside the womb and therefore by the abortions, abortionist's own definition is now a human being, right? Inside, fetal tissue, outside, that's when it becomes a, a human being. Now it's outside of the womb. These same babies are placed in cold stainless steel bowls and refused warmth and food and water until they die. The same is going on for children who, when born naturally, then are discovered to suffer from some kind of retardation or some physical handicap. Infanticide. Infanticide is the aftermath of abortion. It's the next step. I read this week of a mother who was pretty portly, very heavy, She conceived and aborted eight children. Unknown to her husband, she was so, I say it kindly, portly, fat, he never knew she was pregnant. Eight times over, she put them in suitcases and hid them in the basement of the house. That is so macabre, isn't it? And our sensibilities recoil at such a thing. But I'm telling you, folks, that is the logical outgrowth of the abortion industry. If human life is cheap, it doesn't matter if it's inside the womb or outside the womb. If I don't want it, and I think it's going to be a problem to my family, I have a right to take its life. It's the logical and simple corollary to accepting that murder of an unwanted, deformed child, or what have you, is okay. No one sees what I read from the text dealing with Moses. No one sees, well, not, not no one, but many don't see that if a child is born blind or deaf or some other malady, maybe a deformity uh, of some sort, physiologically or whatever, they don't see how that child can be anything more than a burden of my life. And so pure selfishness takes over. Secondly, assisted suicide or mercy killings, so-called, are also the aftermath of abortion. What we're seeing, brethren, is cheapening of life. Abortion cheapens life. Not just the baby's life, but life in general all across life spectrum. Healthcare Weekly Review, Healthcare Weekly Review, a Michigan newspaper for medical professionals named Dr. Jack Kavorkian, Man of the Year last year. Because, as the editor explained, listen to this, Kavorkian exposed our failure to accommodate death as part of healthcare. Did you get that? Did you ever think that death was part of health care? Kevorkian, you remember, came under the great uh, notoriety for the invention of his suicide machine, which injected lethal chemicals into people whom Kevorkian would attach to his machine. Twenty-six states have criminal prohibition against assisted suicide. So in Michigan, 
Kevorkian thought he could get away with it. He had the arrogance of displaying one of the videotapes of his assisted suicide, and so in Michigan he was tried, he was convicted, and he was sentenced to nine years in prison. He was housed right up here at Thumb Regional in Lapeer. He was released when he was age 79. He died last March, last June, excuse me, at age 83. And he's a hero to a medical newspaper dealing with the professionals, doctors, because he included death in health care. Finally, euthanasia is the latest stepchild. And euthanasia, writes the International Anti-Euthanasia Task Force, euthanasia does not mean, does not mean withholding or discontinuing heroic, unnecessary, futile, experimental, or duly unduly burdensome treatments from patients that may be appropriate medical procedure. A euthanasia means an action or omission designed to kill. That's what a euthanasia is. Case in point was that of Nancy Cruzen, who was literally starved to death when her parents won the legal battle to take her feeding tube out from her stomach. She had been seriously injured in an auto accident, but she was not attached, not attached to any life support system. She breathed on her own. Her heartbeat was beating without a pacemaker. Her body metabolized its food. Nurses who cared for her said that she was responsive to stories that they would read to her. She could smile. She could be sad when visitors left. She just could not speak or feed herself. She was not comatose. She was not terminally ill. But the administration of food and water were withheld from her. And the justification for it was, these are artificial medical treatments. They brought in witnesses to testify before the judge, who testified under trial, saying, that Nancy told us she would never want to live in a vegetative state. The judge believed the witnesses and the plug was pulled. Euthanasia has become so much a part of our society that throughout the United States of America, hospitals are required to ask patients if they wish to fill out a self-determination document, such as a living will, in Michigan, living wills are not legally binding. Instead, we have durable power of attorney on health care. I just went through this with one of our committees that I serve on, fighting this. You give the authority of your life when you go into the hospital to a trusted individual. And that trusted individual says what happens to you. Not a document which can be open to interpretation. That might be good. I think it might be if you trust the person that you're giving the power of attorney for health issues. You trust that person to make right decisions. Years ago, and this is many years ago, one of our parishioners was dying in the hospital. She had willed or had written her what she wanted done with her body when she died. She was dying, and she knew she was dying, and she says, I want my body to go to the University of Michigan so that they can use it as a cadaver to investigate the disease, and if it can help other people, that's where I want it to go. Family knew that. Hospital had the document written out. They knew that. I was there in the room when she died. 
Not 15 minutes later, in comes the nurse. She's got the paper that gave the wishes of this person. And then she said this to the family. We have this document that she signed, but now that she's gone, you can do with her whatever you want. Do we send her to University of Michigan or do you want her to be buried at such and such cemetery? Decision is up to you. So sometimes the paper that you sign isn't worth the ink that's on there. You better have a power of attorney. And fortunately, this family said, I'm thank thankful, they said, that's what she wanted, that's what we want. And off she went to University of Michigan. Brethren, we are living in the last days. There, this is not to say that things weren't wicked in previous days, they were. But Jesus says there's going to be an escalation in the last days. Here's, what, here's his words. Brother will betray, betray brother to death. A father, his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. And all men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee, <laughs> flee to another. Matthew 10, verse 21. What's the remedy? God's word says, He who conceals his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Proverbs 28, verse 13. I don't care if you're sitting here this morning and you've had an abortion, or you know somebody in your family that did. This is still true. Those who confess their sin will find mercy with God. Did not David find mercy with regard to his adultery, with regard to his murder of Uriah? And I believe there is as well hope for aborted children Psalm 27, verse 10 says, Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. That's the hope that we have as Christians. And we keep pushing and supporting our Crisis Pregnancy Center. A lot of people in our church work there. It's because we believe in life and we believe in, the, in God, the giver of life. By the way, if you want to learn more on any of these subjects, just go on the internet. There's more out there than you can read, probably more than you'll ever want to read. One of the most excellent sites that I went to was on euthanasia.com. You read that. There, and there's some lectures on there that are on YouTube. The guy was um, speaking on the whole subject of euthanasia. In the Netherlands now, the Netherlands... They've okayed euthanasia for such things as mental retardation. If you're epileptic, blind, deaf, if you lack social skills, if you're having trouble with financial resources, if you see your life as being unbearable or lasting suffering, I'm reading right from the reports, if you have any disorders that affect your vision, your hearing, your mobility, falls that you might have taken, confinement to bed, if you're tired, if you're exhausted and loss of fitness, I mean, the list just goes on and on. You say, well, that's not in our country. That's the Netherlands. They're a bunch of liberals. Euthanasia is permissible and legal in the state of Oregon. They've approved this stuff. And it's coming. And we need to be diligent. 
Our Father, we thank you for your word and praise you for your goodness to us. Thank you for life. Thank you for our life. Thank you that we're here today, that we had a mom and dad that did not abort us. And no matter the circumstances of our life, no matter perhaps some deformity or malady, some physiological or mental incapability, here we are. We enjoy life. We enjoy our family and we love the family of God. We're happy to be a part of the family of God here at Thornville. We wouldn't have it any other way. But Lord, we live in a culture that loves death. The father of death is the devil. Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning. That's what he likes doing, killing people. He killed Adam and Eve, killed the whole race. But you are the father of life. And you take personal offense to any who would terminate your children who would play God and take that prerogative from you. Lord, help us to be pro-life, not just in ideology, but in action. Be with our pregnancy center here in Lapeer, of, of which many of our people are volunteers and staff and workers, and they're on our budget as a mission project for our church. But Lord, we can do more. And the various times they have fundraisers and the onslaught even in Michigan from various uh, organizations trying to discover how they can bring us down. It's always an ongoing battle. Help us to keep our guard up, to be vigilant, to trust our God. We do trust you, Lord. We know that you're on the side of right and we're on the side of right because of who and what you are. Thank you for the life we have. Thank you for all of our children. Thank you for all of the adults that are here. Help the parents to raise their children in the fear and admonition of Christ. May we get our facts straight. May we not be willingly ignorant, but help us to be informed. Bring us out tonight to learn how we might just in our witness, just in our simple witness of talking to people, be able to influence them concerning life. We praise you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name.